First reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these things, three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Second reading is Romans 13, from starting at verse eight. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. My name is John Forsyth. Um, I'm the vicar here at St. Jude, and we, as Nat has mentioned, are starting a new series entitled Love does no harm. Now, of course, we will, of course, be speaking about love, uh, as our reading suggested, but just wanted to reiterate what Nat has already mentioned. Uh, This morning and in coming weeks, uh, we will be speaking about uh, domestic and family abuse. Uh, And so I just want to note that at the front, that this is a deeply partial, uh, pastoral issue, uh, and there are lots of people at our church for whom this is a real and live issue, And we need as a church to acknowledge that. Uh, And if you need some space or someone to talk to, uh, the staff are available. We can also help uh, point you in the direction of other resources. Uh, And we can pray with you. We really want to make sure this is a place where people can be open and share and feel safe at our church. But I want to acknowledge that that can be hard for people as well. 
and uh, if you need to find your own space, please, please do that. Uh, the phrase, love does no harm, uh, is a, actually quite a beautiful phrase. Uh, we are reminded in Scripture that God cares for the vulnerable and the oppressed, and He calls us to, to respond to Him in times of trouble. Romans 13.10 does say, love does no harm. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about faith, hope and love and the greatest of these being love and we've installed some stained glass windows this week just to remind you of that. Uh, at the back you'll see uh, the personification of faith, hope and love or charity as it's uh, sometimes called. Uh, the woman on the left is faith, the woman on the right is hope with her anchor and the woman in the middle looking a little forlorn because her children are asking how long can we have to stay at church for um, at, after the service uh, that is love. That is love. In other words, love is meant to be at the centre, not just of our relationship with God, but it should really permeate the way that we relate to each other. Church should be a place where love flows freely. Where it does no harm, where people care and love each other. Now, it's true that often in churches there is that genuine expression of love, but we also need to acknowledge off the bat that human beings are not always loving. In fact, uh, culturally and worldwide, we have a huge problem with not being loving. In fact, we have a huge problem with abuse and violence as a culture, even in our so-called, so-called civilised Western cultures. On this next slide, just a warning, this is quite a confronting slide. This is the rates of violence against men and women since they're 15, so it excludes those under 15. Uh, this is taken from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. About half of men will experience violence and about a third of women. Uh, women and men experience violence in different contexts. Uh, most men, not all, but most men are likely to be uh, experience violence by people they don't know. Uh, women are far more likely to experience violence from someone they do know. Uh, family violence, family abuse is particularly shocking because it, it comes from someone that you know intimately uh, and someone that you should be able to trust and expect love from. It's important to note this isn't just a Western white thing. It happens in all countries, happens in all community groups. And it's important to note too that yes, uh, women do uh, make up the majority of those who experience violence. Uh, also children and also men experience violence as well. Uh, our police spend an extraordinary amount of their time dealing with family violence. 40% of their time, almost half of their time is spent dealing with this. Uh, Victorian, uh, the crime statistics from Victoria over the past two years, or a two-year period, 1.6 million women and 500,000 men experienced physical or sexual violence from a cohabiting partner since the age of 15. To 
2,800 women and 560 men were hospitalised after being assaulted by a spouse or partner. 72,000 women, 34,000 children and 9,000 men sought homelessness services due to domestic abuse. Uh, intimate partner violence is the leading, uh, leading cause of illness, disability and death for women aged 25 to 44. And on, on the other side, suicide is the leading cause of death for young men in the same age group. Uh, they are very sobering statistics. And the first thing we need to understand is this is a cultural, uh, across all cultures, uh, it's across all parts of our society, and we need to understand that's also, sadly, this is not something the church, or even indeed our church, is exempt from. We're not a little bubble. Abuse happens in our church. Uh, I've spoken to people who've experienced abuse from their husbands. I've spoken with people who've experienced abuse from their wives. I've spoken with people who've experienced abuse from their children. I've spoken with people who've experienced abuse from their parents or other family members. Personally, I know a number of clergy who have abused their spouses and rightly have been removed, uh, removed from any kind of pastoral leadership. In other words, they're not just stories of domestic abuse. They happen in our church and they have happened in this church. That's the first thing I just want to note. And the second thing as we look at this uh, deeply pastoral and complicated issue is to understand that central to abuse and family violence is this idea of power and control. So looking at the Family Law Act, we'll see there's a definition given to us. And it says, family violence means violent, threatening or other behaviour by a person that coerces or controls a member of the person's family, that is the family member, or causes the family uh, member to be fearful. Now, what this means is that looking at uh, domestic abuse, it rarely takes the form of just one single incident. It's far more likely to be an ongoing pattern of behaviour, where a person uses the power and advantage they have to gain control of another person, undermine that person's confidence, and even the ability for that person to feel that they can leave uh, the, the abusive relationship. In fact, one of the most common features of abusive relationships is that the person who's experienced the abuse often feels like it's their fault. And so in abusive relationships, we've seen power and advantage being used to a person's own end at the expense of another person with terrible results. Now, this is an awful reality. And the Bible actually has much to say about the source of where this comes from. It is sin, pure and simple. The Bible tells us that the human heart is pernicious and evil and rebellious. In the story of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, we see a good and beautiful creation with good and beautiful relationships. But in Genesis 3, the people who are made in God's image rebel and sin. And in the very next chapter, chapter 4, 
what we see is family violence, where Cain kills his brother Abel. And the tragedy is this is not a one-off. The abuse of power and authority continues. So what, if anything, is the solution? Well, a bit later on, I'm going to speak about what God's Word says to those who choose to perpetrate abuse, what God's Word says to those who experience abuse. And uh, initially, just some very broad things what we can do as a church. I want to acknowledge that it's very complicated and we're not kind of, this is not a silver bullet, but we want to be in a place where we can change culture and have conversations and make our churches safer. Now, because abuse often does involve power and control, I think it's really important that off the bat we see how Jesus challenges us deeply on how we use the power and advantages we have. What do you do if you have an advantage or power? Well, in Mark 10, we have the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. Uh, not an uncommon thing to people to argue about who's the most important, who has the most privilege, who has the most power. Uh, and Jesus kind of pops their balloon. He says to them uh, in verse 43, not so with you, don't, don't seek greatness. Instead, Whoever wants to become great amongst you, this is the bit right, what should they do? Well, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, must be slave of all. See what Jesus is saying extremely radically, uh, if you have power and authority or strength, you don't use that to, to control other people, you actually use that to serve other people. He completely undermines what power is for. You do not use it for intimidation. You use it actually to become a slave who is, in that culture, the least powerful person. And notice in both cases, Jesus doesn't say, look, consider being a servant or think about being a slave. He says, must. Not an option, right? You must be a servant, and you must be a slave. Let me put this in the context uh, of most marriage relationships. Uh, in our marriage, to, to Anna, I am certainly physically stronger than my wife and my children, although my boys are doing more push-ups as teenage boys are, so at one point that may change. But at the moment, I'm still stronger. And the reality is I'm probably stronger than most of the women here. That's just the way male bodies work. Now, the Word of God is crystal clear at this point. In most marriages, men are physically stronger than women. What this means is that if you are a man, you are called to be a servant and a slave. Always respect your wife. Never intimidate or threaten your wife. Use your strength, which you do have, to serve and protect and honour your wife. She is your spiritual equal. You are her servant. Women are to respect it as equal to men in terms of their standing before God and the promises of the future. The Bible is clear. Women, by the way, are the privileged ones to, to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. 
She is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. God loves her and Christ has died for her. Remember the Jewish people used to, uh, to thank God that they were not a woman, a Gentile, or a slave? They were the kind of three things you didn't want to be? What does Jesus say in Galatians 3? There is no longer male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. Those things have no standing in terms of our hierarchy before God. And men, if you're looking for a model of powerful masculinity in ultimate service, look to Jesus. Creator of the universe, right? That's a lot of power. Gives his life for his people. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, says Jesus in the very same passage in Mark, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. See, Jesus is, is the model that we need to follow. Are you giving your life for your wife? Are you a servant? Are you a slave? And Jesus is, is an amazing model, but he's also more than that. Jesus' gospel is a gospel of both warning and justice for those who choose to perpetrate abuse, and also a gospel of hope and healing for those who've experienced. So what does the gospel say to those who choose to commit abuse? Well, it's a warning. It's a gospel warning. There is never, ever, ever any excuse. Uh, this is not me saying this, by the way. It's actually what God says. There are no excuses. You didn't just lose control. You didn't just have too much to drink. She doesn't just need to submit to you. You are not provoked. I want to make clear too, particularly, if you choose to invoke Bible verses to control and manipulate your wife, the Bible is against you and God is against you. Husbands, this is what God is calling you to do in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's your call. If you want to keep going on, if that's somehow not strong enough, Ephesians 5.28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. That's the call for Christian men. And so if you hide behind the scriptures to justify how you treat your partner, that is vile. If you harm your partner and spouse and children physically or sexually or emotionally or material, can I say, overtly, Jesus stands against you. If you use your power to abuse and control those weaker than you, you are a coward. You are destroying your family, you are dishonouring God, and you are deceiving yourself. Be afraid of the terrifying justice of God. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. 
when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And so I say this as the vicar of this parish, as actually an act of love, because your eternity is at stake. I think as Christians we often feel at times a little embarrassed about how often the Bible speaks about justice and judgment. But judgment and justice are so important because they actually are both a a, a word of comfort and a word of warning. The best forms of human justice will never hear of most of the abuse that occurs. But God sees, God loves and God will act. So if you are someone who chooses to abuse, can I say, do business with God now. Do not leave it till later. And secondly, if this is you, the gospel is actually your hope. It's your only hope. When the Lord Jesus Christ died, he did so as one who was innocent, yet one who was abused and abandoned. And in his death, Jesus bore the terrible cost of God's judgment on all sin and evil, which includes domestic abuse and violence. The gospel truth is this, there is hope, there is mercy available for those who truly repent, who truly repent of their abusive and violent behaviour. We have an extraordinary example in the Scriptures of the Apostle Paul himself. He was a man zealous for violence and murder. In 1 Timothy 1.15, these are his words. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's the gospel. Now, we need to acknowledge, too, that repentance is often very hard for those who choose to abuse. Repentance is not buying flowers or crying or even saying sorry. It's seeking to break the cycle, seeking to let go of control, being honest and open to saying, yes, I have been abusing. Are you willing to bring your abuse into the light or to keep it hidden? Admitting all, not minimising, Because repentance means genuine, uh, godly sorrow. Not just that you're sorry it happened, that's a start, but seeking to radically repent and turn away. It starts, repentance starts in the open and on your knees. It is difficult, but it's not impossible. What about those who have experienced abuse? Can I firstly say, if we have not listened to you, we are sorry. If we listened and didn't believe you, then we are sorry. If we believed you but did nothing about it, we are sorry. Our church needs to get better and that's part of this sermon series. Can I say, for those who've experienced abuse, uh, safety comes first. 
if you are in an abusive relationship, please do not stay if you fear for your safety or the safety of others. If you're able to leave, and I say if because I know at times it is not possible, please leave, please call the police. And if you're unable to leave, please speak to someone. We've, we've got lots of resources we've emailed and sent out and uh, they're around the place. We want them to put them in places where people can access them. Because abuse almost always escalates. Reconciliation, brothers and sisters, is so important, but can I say someone's life is even more important? Often good intentions can lead to bad outcomes. Yes, reconciliation is great, but that person's life is more important. Sometimes within church communities, uh, those who've experienced abuse can feel pressured to hold their marriages together, no matter what the cost, no matter how much they're mistreated, because we're told God hates divorce, right? And that can prevent those who've experienced abuse from leaving or divorcing those who've been abusing them. And I want to say to that, yes, uh, there is an element of truth there, but there is something fundamentally missing. Christian people should be more concerned for the people in the marriage than saving marriages. Not that marriage is unimportant, no, no, we're not saying that, but we're saying you should be more concerned for the people in the marriages than trying to save the marriage. That means it actually may be absolutely fine, if it is your safety at stake, to break up with a person that you were dating, to temporarily separate from a marriage partner that may even lead to divorce, if you want to talk about this further, please, please speak to somebody you trust or to one of the staff. Safety comes first. Secondly, can I say God understands? He is a God of compassion. He has a deep and abiding compassion and concern for those who have experienced abuse and violence. The Psalms often express God's love for those who are broken, not just by their own sin, but those who are broken by the sin of other people. Just one example among many, Psalm 147, verse 3 says, God heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. The Lord heals the brokenhearted. See, our Heavenly Father is a God to whom you can pour out your heart. He's not just compassionate loving, but in the Lord Jesus, He actually knows what it is like to be abandoned and experience abuse. God is able to redeem terrible wrongs and make them right and bring healing. And we need to acknowledge that can be a very slow process. It's measured in years and even decades, not weeks and months. Can I also say, if you are someone who has experienced abuse, your eternity is not defined by what has happened to you. You will, the Bible promises, be made whole and restored. We have the, the beautiful picture in Revelation 21 verse 4 where 
where there's this intimate picture of God, and it says there, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is the picture that God paints of restoration. It's personal, isn't it? He wipes away every tear. What about our church more broadly? Well, I think uh, we can continue, and I think church culture is, is an always slow-changing thing as churches are, just slow to change, that's the nature of churches. Um, we need to continue to take this issue seriously because it occurs in our church and outside our church. Take it seriously. Uh, when you hear of someone who has, has experienced abuse, I reckon you should feel outrage. That should be our kind of, our default, like, how dare this happen? Many people in our church live this day to day, have a genuine fear. Take it seriously. Secondly, it means there's actually everybody's job because it's part of our culture. Our churches should be places of safety for all people. We do lots of work around safety for our kids and youth, right? That's really, really important. We should be making sure this is a place where sexism and violence are condemned. It's not what we do. Um, Christians, by the way, have long championed the equality and equal value of women and men. It was extraordinarily revolutionary in the first century in a massively patriarchal society. And so our church should be a place where people are listened to and people are cared for and people are loved, right? James writes in James 1.27, the religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, visit orphan and widows in their affliction. In other words, caring for those on the fringes is religion. Caring for those in that day's culture at the bottom of the rung. In other words, being a servant, being a slave is how you express the love of Christ. And so we must be a church that welcomes and listens to and cares for people affected by family abuse and violence. In other words, we need to be a church that is shaped by the love of Christ. And of course, we have 1 Corinthians 13 as this wonderful kind of poem about love, and it's often read at, at wedding services, you know, it's kind of the go-to verse for wedding. Uh, by the way, I think we need to expand it beyond, it's good for weddings, by the way, don't get me wrong, but it actually has a broader reach. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud, it, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always boasts, always hopes, always perseveres. But that is an extremely powerful picture of love. One of the problems with that picture of love is it makes love a third thing outside of us. It's a thing out there, right? That's, that's what love looks like. 
So what I'm going to do is I want to change the way we read this. I'm not, I'm not just very clear, I'm not creating scripture. Please don't hear me say that. Um, on the next slide, what I've done is I've taken out the word love from the reading. It, you can see there it hasn't quite fit on. Does it fit on the bottom? On my screen it's a bit missing the bottom, but you get the idea. At what I want you to do is where each of those blanks are where the word love is, I want you to put your name there. Okay, because all of a sudden that then makes it quite real, right? It's not a theoretical thing. Have a read. Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you someone who doesn't envy? Are you someone who doesn't boast? Are you someone who's not proud? Are you someone who doesn't seek to dishonor others? Are you someone who is not self-seeking? Are you not easily angered? Do you keep no record of wrongs or do you have a running list of wrongs? Are you someone who does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth? Do you always protect? Always trust? Always hope? Always perseveres? Here's my reflection when I did it. Some of those, I went, oh, yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty good. Humble. Oh, dear. Is not proud. Fail, right? Some of them, you, you might say, actually, that, uh, yeah, I'm not perfect, but that's something I'm, others you go, ooh, that just skewers me. And that helps us, by God's spirit, work out what we need to work on. If if we are genuinely to be shaped by Christ's love, to live it out in Christian community, in our marriages, in our church, in our society, which one of these, or which ones of these, skewers you and says, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, you need to change me. Because I don't want love to become just a thing that we put out there that we don't engage with, that we kind of, yes, love is great. Where is it changing you? If we are to be a church where love does no harm to its neighbour, if that's kind of to be our thing, then we need to be honest about the times where we are not loving and call upon God's spirit to change us by his spirit. That's the beautiful thing, God gives us his spirit. Brothers and sisters, love does no harm. Now, we will be looking at this in more detail in the coming weeks, but I hope that's given you just an overview, and once again, I know that it can be quite confronting, and we want you to feel the, the seriousness of that, and at the same time, be lifted up by the love of God, with a positive vision of what church can be like. So let me pray as we finish. God of love, all people are made in your image. You love each one of us and know us by name. 
Please bring your boundless resources to all those who experience abuse of any kind. Please give them your protection, your grace, your comfort, your safety and healing. May they know personally your tender care. Give to police and counsellors and pastoral workers and all those who work in this area understanding and wisdom as they offer support in these painful circumstances. In the light of your gospel truth, we lift up all of those who have chosen to abuse but want to repent and change. May your spirit work within them to bring genuine repentance and healing and a deep and persistent change in the way they treat others. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are merciful and you take our sins so seriously that Jesus died for us. We ask that you would enable true and full repentance within us when we are not loving and that healing and transformation would abound. Please work in each of us so that you can help our church be a place of love, safety, justice and truth for all. For the glory of Christ. Amen.